there are hundreds, there are thousands of Catholics who in the last six months, 12 months, two years, are rediscovering Catholic tradition. And it's not just the traditional Latin Mass. It's traditional devotions like the Rosary, like Novenas, like Benediction of the Blessed Sacrament, spiritual direction, mental prayer. And today I want to do a different show. I've invited my friend Chad Judis to come on the show. And he's a guy who has spent years learning Catholicism in a heroic way. And not only is he a guy who studies and is into it, but I know from his personal life, he's a saintly man. He's a good man. He's a good father. And this is really the synthesis of what we're looking for. Yes, we want to form our head. We have to form our heart. And that's a, a synthesis that we all need to strive for. And I think, as you're going to see today, Chad is one of those guys. And so I've invited Chad on. Chad, welcome. Glad to have you on. Well, thanks for having me, Dr. Marshall. It's a, a privilege to be here today. So Chad has been, I've, I've known Chad for, I guess you've been studying at the new St. Thomas Institute since 2014. You've done all nine curricula, all nine certificate, and uh, you written in and said, hey, I finished everything. And whenever I hear about that, whenever I hear someone who's done everything at the new St. Thomas Institute, I want to talk to him because that's my goal. That's that's like the number one student, someone who does everything. <laughs> and so Chad and I got on the phone and we've we've spoken before. We've corresponded before, but we got on the on the phone and, and we talked about Catholic studies and Catholic theology and Catholic tradition and your background. And, you know, we agreed, hey, I, I think it'd be really cool for you to come on and, and talk about your journey. So if you could just sit, you know, quickly and, you know five, 10 minutes, kind of give your background, how you found the traditional Latin mass, tradition, Thomas Aquinas, scholasticism, theology, let us know. Sure. So um, to answer that question in the shortest way possible, because it's quite, it's been quite a journey for the past 12 to 13 years. Um, I had a tremendous thing happen in my life uh, in the middle of my teaching career. I taught for 17 years in Catholic education, all in Catholic schools and diocesan schools. And, um, for the first nine or so years of my teaching career, um, I was in a um, American history in a civics classroom because that's what my, what my background was in when I graduated from college. And I had this tremendous thing happen in my life. We'll talk about later on in the show that drove me very deep into my Catholic faith. And I had I would call it a reversion. I've been a Catholic my whole life, but I guess you could call it an actual conversion. I've been a Piccadilly Catholic most of my life. I thought it was a, a, a buffet and not an all inclusive meal. And I found out later on that. That wasn't the case. So my journey started there and um, I started sharing that experience with people and it led me into apologetics uh, because I was sharing the journey in front of people that were not necessarily Catholic. Maybe they came from other Christian denominations and they had lots of questions about things like you spoke of earlier. The rosary is mentioned in my presentation, devotion to the communion of saints, um, intercession of saints. So I decided to go and move into a theology classroom and I had a former principal at a new school that gave me an opportunity to do that. And I was praying to the Blessed Mother who I have a devotion to. I've been praying the rosary every day. I love your your, your thing every day when you say, hey, everybody, uh, if you're not on the team, if you don't play, pray the rosary. And I wanted, I just asked her to ask Jesus to lead me to the fullness of truth. Because if I was standing in front of young people who I was going to be forming their souls for salvation, I just wanted it to be completely authentically Catholic. And I stumbled upon one of your webinars and I want to say it was one where you were discussing either a Marian dogma or maybe one of the private revelations or apparitions might have been Our Lady of Guadalupe. Yep. And there was an offer to join the St. Thomas Institute, the new St. Thomas Institute. So I, I jumped in immediately because I was really enjoying the, the content. And the minute I got in there and I started teaching theology, I realized that this is what I needed to reach the kids that were in front of me. Because uh, I saw um, a lot of the philosophical misconceptions that uh, a lot of people who are opposed to the faith use to try to, you know, subtly get people to abandon it. Right. And uh, the first thing that struck me was your certificate in philosophy. So I started with that one. And of course, that's when I fell in love with uh, Thomas Aquinas, who I knew of, but not to the degree that you introduced him in the new St. Thomas Institute. Um, when I went through that particular course, I learned so many things that just improved the way I could articulate what Catholics believe and why we believe it. And I could do it in a way that could reach somebody who, ne you know, didn't necessarily believe in God. But we, I could appeal to them through natural law. 
and through reason. And I really was attracted to that because I'm a reasonable guy. And I already thought you could come to know God through reason alone. Uh, you don't, you know, you don't have to have divine revelation to know the triune God that you can't figure out the Trinity on your own, but you can come to know that God exists without that. And then to connect the dots for people and bring them from there. And then of course, I just went on and I continued uh, one, one course after the next, you know, I went into theology, uh, did that one next, did apologetics cause I was doing apologetics. And then, um, once I finished those three, I had a chance to teach church history at the Catholic school where the story that I'll share later on occurred. And while there you had three different courses on church history, you had the one on the patristics, you had one on, um, medieval Catholic studies, and then of course, modern Catholic history. So as I was teaching that, I was, um, earning those certificates and using quite a bit of the material in the class when I was presenting it to the kids. I love the way that you, in a condensed way, share some pretty big ideas about Catholic history and put it in a way that anybody can understand it. And I would build off of that with the kids. And then after that, that's when I really fell into, you asked me how I came upon tradition. Um, the summer of shame in 2018, I was following all of that stuff. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm sad to say that in, let's see, the last time it happened in 2002, I wasn't on the same page. It was my faith I am right now. So that kind of missed the brunt of that um, impact, but I felt it fully in 2018. And I had this a, a very, very deep devotion to Eucharistic adoration and the true presence of Christ in the Eucharist. I saw some of the statistics showing that 70% of people that are Catholic today don't believe in the true presence. Um, I saw some connection between uh, whether it's intentional or not, and whether it's uh, ambiguous or not, some of the abuses that occur in some of the masses where people go that would maybe detriment or be a detriment to their belief in the Eucharist. And I'm a seeker of truth, an individual character, and God's servant first, and I will follow truth no matter where it leads me. And I wasn't afraid to be uncomfortable and to read things that maybe challenged where I was at. I was a you know typical JP2, Benedict XVI, neoconservative Catholic, and I had never been, I had never really read a lot of documents prior to Vatican II. And when I was listening to a lot of your podcast and that that stuff was unfolding, um, and then you wrote your book, uh, which I read, Infiltration. Um, I said, I've got to go look at this because, I, I, like I said, I'm a seeker of truth and I'm going to read it. I'm going to follow no matter where it leads. And I saw some some of the ambiguity, some of the, the difficulty with the hermeneutical continuity. And I started to read it and study it. And I'm still making my way through that. But eventually um, I convinced my family after being selected to be a, a preview to that documentary on the Latin mass, Mass of the Ages. Yep. That's how I got my family to accompany me to their first Latin mass. Mm-hmm. And we've been going now for about... I'd say a little over two or three months consistently, like you kind of challenge folks to do. And even though it is kind of confusing at first for them, I wanted to make sure I could follow the mass in the Missal, or if you subscribe to Benedictus, I do, I use that as well. And kind of, I'm teaching my kids and my wife through the mass. And uh, it's been a beautiful thing. And uh, I'm I'm hoping to get some of my my, my two younger kids, uh, hoping to get them sacraments through Adasis and Latin mass Mm -hmm. in my diocese. So that's part of my journey to tradition. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I, I'm glad pe- I would want everyone to hear this, that th- this journey is, is not just like flipping a switch. Um, it certainly hasn't been for me. It hasn't been for Chad. I think for everybody, it's not that way. It takes time. Um, I've been going to the Latin Mass for 11 years. And there's still, even this morning, I found something in the Missal on today's feast, which is in the tradition, in the 62 Missal. It's the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the pre-55, it's not called the baptism. And I was like, what? I was shocked. I contacted a traditional priest. And so I'm still learning. There are still things um, that I'm figuring out. By the way, the quick answer to that is traditionally the propers were about the baptism of Christ. They just finally named it baptism of Christ in the 62 Mistle. It's not a big deal. But just always learning, always discovering things, always turning the page and It requires a great love, and that's a great love for our Lord Jesus Christ and for our neighbors as ourselves, of course. Now, I wanted to go back to one thing that you said, and it reminded me of a common question that I get from people, and that is they say, hey, Taylor, I noticed you ask us to study a philosophy course before we do theology. I just just want to study God. I just want to study theology. I think studying with philosophy, why would I want to do that? And the answer is, it's very brief. I have, well, first of all, it's Catholic tradition to do it that way. Nature, or grace builds on nature. But if you go to any academic, either high school, college, university, the philosophy departments tend to be more conservative than the theology departments. 
Why is that? Well, there's a lot of crazy nonsense in philosophy departments. But in philosophy departments, you often learn logic. It's a required course. And you often begin in a philosophy 101 by reading Plato and learning about Socrates and the Socratic method. And you read some Aristotle. And so you always begin with how to think yeah. and how to reason. And I heard you say that, Chad, about I'm a reasonable guy. I wanted to learn how to think properly, natural law, logic. Yes. And there's so many people out there that used to be common core in the old yeah. days. People took a logic course, always. Yes. People watching right now have never taken a logic course. It's not your fault. No. Nope. You were robbed. And the problem is, is people jump into theology without ever learning how to think. And when you do that, you get into heresy. Yes. I agree. I, I mean, I, I'm thinking of Matthew 7 when in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about building your house on rock mm -hmm. or building it on, on sand. I know he's speaking about building on the rock of, of Peter in the church, but also building a rock of the foundation of how you're going to approach that. And philosophy, as you said so aptly, teaches you the process of how to think. Right. What we have in education today, I find, which is very disappointing to me, as I know I've heard you speak about many times, is they're teaching people what to think, and they're just accepting it without even questioning the premise for which things are being presented to them. And it makes it very easy to dupe someone if you're just being fed what to think, and you haven't been taught a process of how to break that down and analyze it and compare what is subjectively attached to you in your emotions compared to an objective reality. I've had many things in my life, including things within the faith that I had to come to terms with that I may have had an emotional attachment to. But I understood God was outside of me and that God, that truth was going to be there before it was here before I, I got here and it'll be there after I'm gone. It was up to me to conform my life to that. And you have to be convicted and have a love of Christ because ultimately that's not following a rule. That's choosing to love God more than you love the thing that you're attached to. And that's what that relationship is all about. And philosophy to me has been the key to understanding theology in a sound and a direct and precise way and being able to communicate it that way. Yes. And then so, you know, you'd said that your journey kind of began with apologetics. Apologetics is not apologizing for Catholicism, it's defending right. Catholicism. And then a lot of people, I think when they hear, I'm going to do apologetics, they run into, I am going to learn the proof texts, which is the footnotes. Right. Like this Bible verse answers this and this. Bible. I mean, that's very important. We need to do that. I mean, I have a whole Bible cheat sheet that I tell people to carry around with them and use, right? But... Yeah. Being skillful and being convincing and being confident also comes with learning to think property, properly, learning logic, learning fallacies. And I think stressing that at the beginning, whether it's in high school, college, or if you're going to go to New St. Thomas Institute like Chad did, and starting with that philosophy, I know it's not as, you know, it's, it's not as sweet. It's not as much candy, but it builds that basis to think properly. And I... On this podcast, when I'm talking and I'm going through things like we did yesterday and we or the day when we we're talking, analyzing Cardinal Supich's speech um, or, or going through arguments that are going in our government, we're breaking down arguments and doing syllogisms. Yep. That's convincing. That's powerful. Yep. People think it's interesting because they don't hear it. They don't see it. So we have to learn it. Uh, one more thing I want to ask you on a question, kind of a follow up on what you just said. Uh, your family, sure. teaching your family through the mass. Um, I am going to say something that may shock people. And that is I talk to a lot of people coming into the tradition. And one of the most common ones is guys loving it. I love the TLM. My wife's not a big fan. Have, has that been your experience? Uh, maybe I'm uh, uh, an anomaly when it comes to that. But I think I'm, I'm just on the opposite end of that. Good. My wife is very... Um, docile i think she lives out ephesians 5 the way it should be lived out when we talk about it she trusts me and trusts what i'm saying of course she trusts my integrity of my study and my knowledge and she knows i don't jump to conclusions or just lead them down a path that i haven't first tested the water to see if it was valid to go down myself right. um I, I i i started bringing her and the kids and i would you know i explained to her some of the history behind what a lot of people on the outside of the church looking in who don't follow this stuff as closely as probably most of the people that watch your program do about some of the tensions and the things within the church. And of course, uh, in the last few years, the Lord has given me a privilege to be able to see that up close inside and personal. And um, I can verify that, you know, if you're if you're aware of it, you can see it. And when I brought her in and started explaining to her because my wife loves Jesus in the Eucharist, too. And so does my so do my children. Uh, when I started to explain that this is really about 
the Latin mass is about God. It's not about us. And we're going there to um, respond to the love that God gave to us. And I always tell anybody I'm in front of that that ultimate act of love that God gave on the cross, it demands a response. And not responding is a response. Mm. And I like that. It, this is the greatest response we can give is to go and into in, in the, the highest form of worship to adore in a fear of God. Not I'm afraid of him, but I'm in awe of his power, his might and his goodness and to give him proper worship. And I, the deeper I go into my faith, the more I spend time in front of the Eucharist and the more I bring my family to the mass and just walk them through a basic uh, you know, explanation, the more they want to go. In fact, one Sunday I had to I had to attend a, a different parish for something I do for work. And I had to give a presentation and my wife took the kids on her own, which I thought was pretty bold. And I was excited that she did that. And I, I had to go to the mass at the parish I was at. But and I missed that weekend and I was upset because I couldn't go. Uh, I, it really once you start going, like you said, and you get used to going, you not even, you're desiring to go to the Latin mass. If I've given I mean, I, I like I said and a few minutes ago, I, I, I don't I'm not going to tell people where to go to mass. I'm just not at that point yet. But I, I if I have a choice and I have a TLM, I'm going to the TLM. <laughs> yeah. For sure. For sure. Um, could you speak, Chad, about you, you, you mentioned it before and I, we've talked about it before, but the love of Christ in the Eucharist. Yes. I think for most people, that's how they find their way in tradition because they see a host dropped on the ground. They see a chalice spilled. Um, they, they see a priest changing the mass so there's sort of this shock this horror of oh my goodness i can't believe this is happening in god's church and then they begin to search read try something new and that's kind of the the path can you talk about how your love for the eucharist led you to seek more of a traditional expression absolutely and just a caveat to what you were just saying um I happen to live in a very conservative diocese, and, and we we don't have a lot of the abuses that I frequently see on the Internet or when I'm looking around. So it wasn't necessarily that there wasn't reverence in the mass for it. It was just I didn't I, I couldn't I couldn't handle any more um, lay people giving out communion. Once I had read some books by Bishop Athanasius Schneider and looked in more deeply into the teaching on the Eucharist and understanding the indult where receiving in the hand came from. It was just out of an extraordinary love for Christ in the Eucharist that led me to say, I'm not receiving on my hand anymore. I'm going to receive on my tongue. I have a son who's a lifelong paraplegic. We're going to talk about him later on in the show. He's always received on the tongue because he doesn't have a lot of dexterity in his hands, and I never wanted him to drop the Eucharist and commit a sacrament. So I eventually said, look, you're going to receive on the tongue. And, and to be in, before I had this epiphany, so to speak, of all this stuff in a deeper way, to be in um, union with him, I was going to receive on the tongue. So I was always receiving on the tongue standing. But then when I read and looked more into it, because I wanted to honor the Lord with the greatest expression of love and awe for transubstantiation, for his true presence in the Eucharist, I began wanting to receive kneeling. And of course, that spread down to my whole family. And the reverence of the, the, the traditional Latin mass, the beauty, I've looked at the, like you said, I've looked into the canon, uh, the, the canon of the mass when people, when they were praying, the, the offertory prayer, it is a propitiatory sacrifice. Yes. You can't get around that. Right. In the TLM, it's just subliminally it's oozing from that, and I feel like some of that is lost on some folks, and that might be a reason why some of them don't see the true presence um, in the in the other in the other form of the mass. But I think if it's taught well and done right, it's possible. But I, I still think, like I said, the best place to really bring your family to the fullness of that is to just have them come and experience. We went to the Christmas mass this past Christmas for the first time. I didn't get to go at midnight, but I did go to the one at 11 o'clock on Christmas day. And they had the full blown um, choir. They had the chant. It was, it was the most beautiful mass I've ever been to. It was amazing. amazing. I mean, I, it was, I was speechless. We it should was. be, we should be. Um, let's pivot and, and talk sure. about Eli. And this is, your passion, you know, the, the title of this video is not just about sacred tradition, it's about fatherhood. And, you know, today people think, oh, patriarchy is so bad, you know, rule of the father, oh, we must destroy it. But true fatherhood, true masculinity is power, it's strength, it's danger, united to love and sacrifice. That's what I say. It's all the, the, yeah. the strength of masculinity, but it it's serving 
a sacrifice. That's what we see, of course, with the Holy Trinity. And that's what I see in your life, Chad. So can you tell us about your son and and uh, just the, the journey you've been on with him, with your wife and, and the family? Absolutely. So I've recorded this complete journey uh, in a, three separate books. I'll give a little synopsis of the bigger picture of the story. When I said at the beginning of the program that something happened in my life that brought me to a radical reversion or conversion to the faith, in May of 2005, one of my former students asked me a question I'd never been asked before. He said, um, hey, Coach Judis, what's your greatest fear? And I told him my greatest fear to be to have a child with a mental or physical handicap because I was such a perfectionist. I didn't think I'd handle that very well. And I finished up my time uh, at that school, moved on to the school where this story took place. And I never gave that, you know, that statement a second thought, having no idea that in four short years, my greatest fear would become my reality. In the midst of our second pregnancy, a 16-week ultrasound revealed to my wife and I that our second child was diagnosed with a birth defect so severe that 80% of the couples who received that diagnosis at that point in the pregnancy choose abortion. Yeah. And we chose to pray for a miracle. Now, I know that, you know, maybe your audience is sitting there and, you know, it is January. We're about to have the celebration of the anniversary of Roe versus Wade. I've actually been a speaker um, at the request of the Archdiocese of Washington, D.C. I don't know if it was when you were working back then or not. It was back in 2014 nope. when I went. I uh, actually, I think I was at that march. Uh, I think I was. So I okay, heard you so back I then. Okay, I, I told his story at St. Matthew's Cathedral and... Um, you know, it's not just a pro-life story to me or a story, another story about a little boy with a disability who overcame all kind of odds. To me, it really hits on one of the theological things that has solidified my conviction in Catholicism. Uh, it's about redemptive suffering. Yeah. And, you know, I tell people all the time, look, if you don't have a child with, um, with a special need, everybody right now, especially what's going on in the world, is dealing with something, right? So just take whatever it is you're dealing with and put it in the place of my son. And you're going to relate to every single thing you're reading or hearing me say when I give that presentation. And, um, you know, he has defied the odds. Um, we had a lot of little miracles along the way, little signs that God was with us. God showed me he, he doesn't take our suffering away from us, but he does promise to be with us every step of the way through it. It enhanced my devotion to the Blessed Mother when I was scared. And, uh, you know, when you're fearful, you have trouble seeing things with the eyes of faith mm -hmm. and it tests your faith. But I ran to the rosary. People rallied around me in the rosary, prayed the rosary with me, prayed and prayed and prayed. And, you know, my son can do things that medical science said he wouldn't be able to do. And for a long time, I really thought that that was the miracle. But as I've grown deeper into it, I realized that um, my son was never the one. He is paralyzed physically, but he was never the one paralyzed in his faith. I was and that God had not sent me that child so that I could take care of him so much as God the Father could take care of me. Because I struggle with perfection and control, and I have to wake up every day as a dad and embrace this very challenging situation where I have somebody who has beat the odds intellectually but physically can't do 90% of what you and I do for ourselves. And when I get off of work and I go home, my real job starts because i got to provide care for him in the evening because nobody else can anymore. And um, it's taught me a selflessness. Uh, it's taught me the love of the cross, the, the total free, fruitful, and faithful love of Jesus Christ that he gave to us, and that what you said, grace does build on nature, because I know in my nature, especially my fallen nature, outside of sanctifying grace, I cannot be that guy. I can't be his dad. So I go to the Lord every day. That's why I love the Eucharist. That's why I have eventually ended up at the TLM, because I need to solidify my faith and my family's faith and to lead as, as, the, as the high priest of the home. And it really has trickled down to my family. One quick story. You love the rosary. My 16-year-old son, he was about three and a half when this happened. And if you read the first book, I dedicated this book to him because one day I wanted him to look at it as a young man like he is now, maybe in his 20s or as a father one day from different perspectives. Um, he witnessed this conversion. He witnessed this daily ascent uh, in relentless pursuit of truth in Christ and focusing your whole life around that and building your life around that and not the other way around. And I prayed the rosary with him every morning on the way to school. And he got to be a freshman in high school and I got in the car and the first morning in high school, before I could pick up the rosary, he looked at me and he said, dad, we're going to pray the rosary, right? And I'll start, I almost started crying. Yeah. I was like, yeah, we're going to pray the rosary. And, you know, it's statistically proven that if the man has the conversion in the home, there's at least a 90% chance that the rest of the family will continue to practice their faith. And it drops to 
when the man is effeminate, not feminine, but doesn't, you know, he's addicted to pleasure, doesn't want to do the difficult things he has to do to lead his family and serve his wife the way he's been called to do that. And the woman is tempted in her fallen nature to usurp his authority at the home. Yeah. And this ends up inverting what God had revealed as necessary. It's the all domestic in church Genesis. Is dead it's all in if, Genesis. If you, if you don't do that. I, that's, I mean, for me as, as a father in my journey to this point, that's for me to sum it up the best way I can. It is possible. And you just need a wife who, um, through time has humility and understands that this is not her role. Mm-hmm. She has one. And if she does it right and you do your role right, the house is going to be a completely different place. And it is now. It is. And you know, one thing, <laughs> you know, even with joy and we have these things where we disagree, believe it or not, my wife disagrees with me sometimes. <laughs> um, I just say, Hey, it's on me. Yeah. If it goes bad, if it goes wrong, a total disaster, it's, it's all on me. hundred percent. You know, you just, just, Trustful surrender, but I'll take 100% of the blame. Yes. So I'm going to lead on this one. Yep. And I, I and I think that does bring a certain amount of freedom, not that it would take away fear on something that's, you know, you disagree on or is a major family change or a family decision or financial decision on things sure. uh, which do happen. Um, and I, I think also uh, a woman, when she sees her husband living with strength, but also with the sacrifice like we talked about yesterday, octa non verbo, action not words. Yes. Uh, that just that just banks a ton of trust and a ton of credit. And um, if you're living, if you have, I saw someone in the comments as you were talking. They said, "Oh, the patriarchy's abused its power." Yes, that happens. Um, you take all the strength, all the power that a man has, all the energy that a man has, and if he uses it for pleasure, right? It's a total corruption. It's a total abuse. Right. But if he uses it for sacrifice, to build something, to pass something on, to defend, to protect, like you do with your little boy, I mean, that's the, that's one of the most beautiful things. Because you're, all you're doing is just reverberating and echoing the life of the Trinity in this world. Yes, and I was speaking to some folks yesterday, and I told them that this is not misogynistic. This is the way God set it up. It's yeah. through natural law. Yeah. If we follow that, we're going to find the way to truth. and. It's not about me controlling my family. It's never been that. It's about them trusting in me the way that I'm supposed to be trusting in God to lead me to heaven. And I got to lead them to heaven. And, uh, you know, I lead in spiritual matters. And that's where I'm supposed to lead. And if I can lead there and I do that effectively, then my wife is going to have confidence I can lead in other places in my life as well. But it's got to start there. Yeah. Tell us about Eli's faith. Eli's faith is pretty amazing. Uh, He's going to be 13 in February. He's in sixth grade. Um, he was supposed to be very mentally disabled. He's not. He's you know, on average in part, in, you know, in his, the way he achieves in school. He's a happy little soul. Um, he's innocent. Uh, and he's he's growing in his faith. He he's he's he wants to make his confirmation. Mm-hmm. He wants to go to mass. Um, and he really does impact the faith of everybody he encounters. We've had four or five young men from our uh, fraternity be caregivers for him because my wife is a neonatal intensive care unit nurse. She's done that for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have help. Um, and I can see the impact he has had on those young men. And, and it's given me a chance to evangelize and minister to them. And a lot of them are on the verge of getting married. And the third book I wrote, I wrote for that audience because I went back to where I was from my first child and how it, this whole thing changed my, my life uh, and the way I saw myself as a man, a husband, a father, a teacher, um, and now the leader of my family. And really understanding, dropping the secular understanding of what marriage is all about and embracing the beauty of what has been revealed about that by God. Yeah. I remember I, this was before I was a Catholic. Uh, you know, I was a Protestant minister before I was an Anglican priest. I remember seeing... A really a, a beautiful thing as an Anglican. Of course, I don't believe in Anglican orders or the Anglican sacraments anymore, but I remember seeing a father and a son at church um, at the communion time. And in communion, when we were Anglican, I mean, we distributed at a kneeler. It was very traditional. Yes. It wasn't like the no sort of. And I remember seeing this father wheel his son up to the rail. And I had already received and gone back and watched. And it was so beautiful because the father was so tender and he slowly made the sign of the cross over the child who couldn't make the sign of the cross. Oh, wow. And then the child received. And then I think the 
the father put the sign of the cross over the child again. And it just, I remember just how beautiful that was that Christ was, you know, well, again, it's kind of, a, here I am kind of being a little bit ecumenical, but, you know, just, just Christ active sure. in the soul of a handicapped child and then just sort of the extra effort and yes. time to, of the father with the son is very beautiful. And I, you know, when I hear you talk about your son, I remember that, that memory and that impact that it made on me. I mean, is, I mean, is that how your son received communion? Can you, there, there, you sent a picture to me. I did. But, that, can you that's, explain? Sure. So he, he sit he sits in his wheelchair and he rolls up even at the TLM. Um, the priest will open the gate and come out of the sanctuary and he always receives on his tongue. Yeah. And that the picture I sent you was actually of his first communion, okay. which was yeah. made years yeah, ago. It's on the screen. People can see it. But he, um, he receives like that every time. And, uh, like I said, at first, Earlier we were speaking, I, I did it uh, when I wasn't as in tune on what happened with the indult for communion in the hand. I didn't really hadn't studied all that yet. I just wanted to be in a sol a consolidarity with my son. I wanted to be you know, consolidated with him. So I would walk up and receive standing on the tongue. And then as my knowledge, my understanding and my study grew and my love for the Eucharist grows. It's not uh, it's not a show. It's not you know, it's not being overtly pious. I'm doing it because it's what God requires, but because I truly want to honor God yeah. in the gift he's given to me and himself and my son. His whole life it oozes selflessness. It draws you out of yourself. And everybody who gets to know him experiences that. And you are right. Uh, God can use the, the disability of someone as an instrument to bring other people to himself in a way that none of us, that we all have disabilities, right? I mean, mine are invisible. My sons, you just can see. Yeah. But it, it's the most powerful thing I've ever seen. So I assume that when when he goes to communion, you you wheel him up. I do, and then the priest comes out. He does. And this is a good. This is actually. I'm glad you mentioned this, Chad, because I get this question from people, especially elderly people, who are okay. coming back to the Latin Mass, and they say, "I'm afraid to go because I can't use the kneeler, and I'm not going right. to be able to receive communion." And that's definitely not the case. Mm -hmm. I was at Mass just the other day. I saw someone come up in a wheelchair, and the priest comes out of out of the yes. altar rail and gives you yes. communion in your wheelchair. I've seen people come up with walkers. Yep. They just stand at the rail and lean forward with their tongue out. I've seen it. people without walkers who can't kneel. Yep. They go to the rail, they put their hands on the rail and they lean forward and the altar boy puts the patent under their chin and yep. they receive. So just because you can't kneel, don't worry. It's not required. No one's going to wave their finger at you. This happens all the time. But so yes. in the picture, I'm looking at the picture, Chad, it looks yes. like he's leaning forward. So he has that mobility. He does. Yeah, he does. He's most of his paralysis is from the waist down. He does have a lot of mobility in his upper body. Um, he has spina bifida. It's a neural tube defect that occurs in the first six weeks of pregnancy. Uh, it literally means open spine. And he has the most severe form of it. Okay. And if you, re you read the books or go to my, my YouTube page or something and see some of my talks, I can explain that fully. But um, he does do PT. So he's gotten a lot stronger in his upper body. He has a lot more flexibility in his chair um, now that he does that. So, yeah, he is mobile. He can lean forward and receive yeah. in the chair. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And then uh, the other siblings. Yes. So I have an older son who's a sophomore in high school, probably around some of the ages, some of your older kids. Mm -hmm. um, and then I have a younger son beneath him who is seven and he's about to make his first communion. And I've been working with him at home, preparing him. I'm using... Um, the blessed program from a uh, dynamic Catholic and I'm working in the um, catechism of St. Pius X and the Baltimore catechism on some things with him as well. So um, those are a treasure. If you, if you have those, yep. you have to use them. They're great. <laughs> well, I, I was, you know, when I went and read the catechism, of the council of Trent for the first time, I was so shocked that it explicitly states that it is the role of the father and the pastor to get the child approved for sacraments. You know, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, it says I learned it something new today. <laughs> it says it there. And I was just like, how refreshing. I know that's always in my mind how it should be. But the fact that the catechism, the council of Trent states that, yes, that it's really the role of the father and the local pastor to get the child prepared and passed, not a committee, not a group, not a bunch of lay people, but the man who has biological authority over the child, the dad, and the man who has spiritual authority over the child, the pastor, work in synergy, grace building upon nature to prepare the child for the sacrament. What if that were actually the case in the Catholic Church? And that would, I mean, that would be ideal. Right. You can't just drop your kids off to get the sacraments. 
I, I had lunch, uh, Chad, yesterday with a, a fraternity of St. Peter, priest, great priest, young guy, just I loved hearing him. He just talked about mental prayer and Jesus Christ and the Eucharist and talking with Christ. And you could tell this guy just lives with Christ and that the traditional Latin mass and traditional sacraments are just the best vehicles for that. So it's just yes. a great, it's a great blend. Uh, it's what it should be, right? Of, of saints yes. in love with Christ, talking with Christ, living in this traditional ethos and, and patrimony. Um, but, you know, he, he kind of reminded me that our priests need to be holy men. And there is a certain kind of practicality about him. You know, we were talking about what's going on in the church and, you know, traditionos custodis and losing the Latin mass and all that. And, you know, it was just a reminder that the whole point of the mass and all that is to get us in conversation, loving Christ, speaking with Christ, spending half an hour every day communicating with Christ, the life of the Trinity, doing that. And they can take away so much from us. And so many saints, you mentioned St. Isaac Jogues and others, they, they lost the Mass for a time. They didn't have access to sacraments. And yet they continued to grow and become great saints. And, of course, we don't want to do the the extreme of that, which is pros and say, well, you don't need the sacraments at all. Right. Um, but it's just a good reminder that all of this is ultimately to make us holy, to make us patient, to make us saints, to fill us with grace. And I think that's, it's obviously something in your life and in your family. And it's a beautiful thing. It is. And, uh, before we started, I know you talked about maybe, maybe talking about the role of suffering mm -hmm. a little bit. Um, I just like to say a couple of things about that. I have three punchlines that people ask me about suffering. Um, and why I thought it was so valuable. Uh, I know Padre Pio talked about if we knew how valuable it was, we'd ask for more of it. Um, for me in my life, it showed me that he was God and I was not. I needed that when it happened. It's purified me. And um, undoubtedly, if you look at this story from start to finish, especially where I am now in my faith journey, it has definitely brought about a greater good. And those are philosophical arguments for, you know, proving why an all-loving God and his permissive will would allow suffering. Yeah. Um, and Christ wants us to experience everything in our humanity he did in his so we can become more like him you know, other saints in the world. And uh, I am where I am today, not in spite of my circumstances, but because of them. Yeah. And I'm grateful for that every day. Yeah. Yeah. What would you say to people who, um, well, <laughs> there's two groups of people in my mind. One, the first group would be, there's a lot of young people, I've noticed, Chad, that are in their early to mid-20s. They're even Catholic, but they're horrified of getting married and having kids. A lot of it is they their parents are divorced. They had uh, dysfunctional homes, bad situation, and they know it's going to be suffering. And they hear people like us say, "Yes, there's going to be suffering right. involved in it." And they're like, "I'm just not. I'm not going to do that." So that's one group I'd like you to speak to, maybe. And then the second group is people who um, know that they need something more. And and is it? Can they? Is it just? becoming more patient and loving, or do you actually need to do all this stuff like rosaries and Latin masses and all that? So maybe okay. that's two, two, two phases. Okay, so let's start with the younger folks first. It's ironic you asked that because I mentioned a while ago we have young people that give us aid in our home. One of them happens to be helping us right now. Okay. Outstanding young man, comes from a wholeheartedly Catholic home. He's got you know six siblings. He's one of the younger ones. Uh, amazing guy. I'm getting to walk with him uh, and getting to know him in a deeper way. And he's asking a lot of questions. He has a serious girlfriend that he's thinking about getting married mm -hmm. to. And he's asking my wife a lot of questions, too. And, <laughs> um, you know, I, I would say I got married at 23. I don't know how old you were whenever I you guys got married. And my wife was okay. 22. So I've been married almost 20 years now. And to me, I, I think it's a mistake to wait mm -hmm. because, it, you know, you should still be courting someone when you're married to them. Yes, and still doing it today. You got to, you know, or, you know, or the, or the, it, it's going to get, it, it's, it's not going to be the same as it was when it first started all the time, but you're going to have moments of that and you have to embrace that. Um, don't be afraid of that. I mean, it's the most beautiful thing. And, you know, to me running around and dating, I did all that before I got married and it's just not what it's cracked up to be. And 
if I'd have known what I know now and I could tap myself back on the shoulder, I'd have done things a lot differently. And I still would have probably married the same person that I married. And I'm glad that God brought her in my life. But don't be afraid to make that commitment early on in a journey together through that, because if marriage leads you to holiness, then you're going to sanctify one another. But you got to have the sacrament working in your life in order for that to happen. So putting it off is a bad idea. Even bringing in kids to the world is, you know, don't wait to do that. Um, They're such a gift. It just takes time to realize the kind of gift that they are. But once you once you start that journey and you grow from it, you can't regret it. You know, it's just kids are amazing. Don't be afraid to make commitments. I think, you know, if you wait too long, you're missing out on on the growing part together. And that's part of the best. That's been the best part of my marriage. Would you say that for you and, and your wife as well? Yeah, I mean, well, the fun times are always great, but there's there's that element. It's just sort of like it would be like someone saying, well, I know like working out or exercise is good for me, but I'm going to get out of breath and sweaty and be sore the next day. And it's like, yes, you are. But there are so many other benefits to it, like having a fresh mind, sleeping well, being in better shape, having, you know, you know, more strength to run around with the kids. And I mean, there's all these other things. It's like, yes, there is definitely going to be sacrifice pain. You will have hard years and you'll have, Great years, hopefully more great years. But yeah, I mean, choosing what seems to be easy isn't always no. the best. Running Nothing a marathon is hard, but it's a great yes. achievement. And no one at, you know, the very last mile is like, this feels great. I, this is just, you know, it's when you cross the finish line. And, uh, yes. or it's kind of, you know, St. Paul uses the analogy of a woman giving birth. Yeah. You know, um, you know, there's all this travail and struggle, but when you see that baby, it's awesome. It's, yeah, it's worth I it. Think, you know, how many, I mean, I've heard my, we have eight kids. Believe it or not, today is the birthday of my twins. They turn 18 today. Oh, wow. Can't believe it. Can't believe it. Taking them out to dinner tonight, my, wow. my wife and I. <clears throat> but, I mean, several times, I don't know how many times, but I remember my wife, all the struggle. We had three or four kids at home, no drugs, all natural. And as soon as the baby is born, I remember at least twice, she said, I want to have another baby. And I'm thinking, man, that wouldn't have been my response after everything I just witnessed (laughs) right now, but good. And, and that's, that's life. It is Uh, nothing in life that's worth anything is easy. And, uh, to kind of quote Archbishop Fulton Sheen, you can't have an Easter Sunday in your life without a good Friday. So, right. Might as well embrace the cross with Jesus because without it, it's pretty miserable. <laughs> and, and I mean, the other option of like joining the religious life, I think that's another problem is religious life became soft. It became easy. It became sort of like living in a pretty nice apartment complex with other bachelors after Vatican II. And that just turned into a bad situation. I mean, the religious life, you read like St. Bede of what the, the monks and <laughs> in Scotland and England and Ireland were doing to evangelize. Those guys were suffering and living. I mean, they were like athletes for the Catholic faith. Um, There's, there's a strenuous effort that goes into it, carrying the cross, fighting the good fight. So I would tell, I mean, you already said it, young people just do it, get in there. Yeah. You're going to suffer, but it's going to be beautiful. And you know, you talked about exercise and I'm like, you, I work out, I swim, I do all that stuff, and it's important to be able to be active, to be around, especially when you have younger kids. But you, know, you get a dopamine rush when you get through working out. The same thing happens in marriage. All the, all the low points, they make the high points worth being there for. And it's what strengthens the kind of a reciprocal self-giving love that you're giving to one another and that Christ is right in the middle of. Um, it's going to lead to your total fulfillment, you know, um, on this, this side of heaven. Ultimately, our fulfillment's with God in heaven. But it's going to be the closest thing you're going to get to that this side of heaven in a fallen world. So I like that. don't wait. Fulfillment. Yeah, don't don't. Does wait. anyone really <laughs> out there believe they're going to find fulfillment in this life and that it will be painless and without suffering? No. Could could anyone really believe that? No, I don't think it's impossible. All right, and then what do you say to all the people who are like, yeah, I mean, I want this. I need I need this joy. I need this fulfillment in my life. But do I really need all this like traditional stuff? Oh, I would say. Um, that when people ask me how, I, you know, people ask me how I, I do this every day, when they look at the totality and the reality of my situation, 
I can't do it without, I, I got to pray a rosary every morning on the way to work. I got to go to adoration. I'm very fortunate right next to where I work is a place I can go to adoration every day. And I got to have that time for mental prayer and time set aside for God, especially if I'm going to get up in front of people and share the deposit of faith, which is part of my uh, job. Yeah. They don't need me, they need Jesus. And I better fill myself up with him as much as I possibly can before I do that. This is the Eucharist, um, the sacramental life. Jesus instituted them for a reason. It's to take us from the desert into the promised land, mm. uh, just like he led the Israelites out of um, Egypt into the desert and into the promised land. You, you, you need the manna, man, from heaven every day. I can't do that. I can't speak for anybody else. I know I could not do what I've been asked to do without that. It is To me, it's an absolutely essential part of my life now. I can't imagine my life or trying to do what I have to do every day, which is most of the time, one moment at a time, without it. Yeah, it's a it's a beautiful thing. You need that fuel. I mean, I I have the same thought. I'm like, I'm gonna go and talk to these people on YouTube, or if I'm gonna go to an event and I'm gonna speak, I always feel like, man, I need to, I need to charge up. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like you can't fake it. You can't can't get in front of people and and yeah. fake it. Like you have to really try to get get our Lord to fill up the the well of grace so that you can at least give someone a drink. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. It's well, a non-negotiable for me. I gotta have it. Yeah. Well, Chad, you you got three books. The first one is Waiting for Eli. Second one is? Eli's Reach on the Value of Human Life and the Power of Prayer. And then the third one is Growing with Eli, Our Journey into Life and Light. The first book is The Journey from the Pregnancy to the Birth Mm. of My Son. The second book is when I started sharing the story, how it entered into people's lives when they were in the midst of immense suffering, and how when they encountered the story, it completely changed the way that they perceived it, and it changed their faith journey in it. So it's really about how his life has impacted other people. I told their stories. Yeah. And um, the third book is my journey as a husband, mm-hmm. a man, a father, uh, and goes back to where I was at before I had my first son and how it radically transformed my marriage, transformed my life, and has led me to the place where the Lord has me today. And I felt like once I had encapsulated those three aspects of the story, the story is the first book. The story behind the story is the third book. And the impact of the story is the second book. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but that's that's it. Good. Well, I, I put a link below this video. If you all want to get those books, uh, you can go to Chad's website. And then Chad also has a YouTube channel where he do videos. It's, uh, it's just your, it's your name, right? It is. And it's growing. It's it's um, And really, I set it up to address the four big reasons why people leave the church. They don't see the existence of God. They can't uh, see the compatibility of faith and science. The big one is um, why an all all loving God allows suffering. And then some of them are some people confused about the natural law and the reason why I think they have a reductionist view of the human person. They're reducing, defining their humanity based on their sexuality. And I just think that's a misinterpretation of the human person and that people are made for more than that. So I make some natural law arguments and some uh, theological arguments for that on that channel. Yeah, I mean, when you when you deny that what makes you human and gives you meaning is that you're in the image and likeness of God with an intellect and a free will, when you deny that, you're you're off to the races on trying to figure out what defines you. And and it seems in the yes. last two to five years, sexuality is what people have turned to. Well, I'm I'm an L. Well, I'm a B. Right, I'm a right. Q. I'm a T. I'm a this that you know mixed with this. And um, we all know that that's that's not the fulfillment. That's not it. No, no, because we're made for union with God, yeah. and we're only going to find our fulfillment ultimately yeah. in Him. Not even with any other person, even our spouse, as great as I, they are, is not going to give us the fulfillment. Or God, whatever is, so. weird combination. No, right. <laughs> yeah, that you're trying you want to, you, it, yeah, and, yeah. And, and just for people to know, my son has had five brain operations in twelve years of his life, and throughout the duration of my speaking and public ministry, everything that I've received has always gone to supplement all of his lifelong medical expenses. So I just wanted to throw that out there as well. Beautiful. Well, Chad, I mean, thanks for, for coming on. I, I just wanted to showcase um, a man who is a Catholic, who loves tradition, who loves studying Catholicism and our history and our, our scriptures, our tradition, um, but also lives it. Uh, let people know what is possible and to live a, a life of sacrifice and uh, a little bit of struggle, yeah. but ultimately the, the meaning of the fulfillment that you express. So thanks so much for, for coming on and sharing that. Thank you for having me.
Yeah. I really appreciate it. So everybody go check out Chad uh, Juicy's uh, YouTube channel. I got the link below if you want to look at his site, look at, at his books. Um, if you want to join New St. Thomas Institute and take the courses he was talking about, you can do that at newstthomas.com. There are nine courses in there. There's philosophy, theology, apologetics, church fathers, medieval, modern. Help me out, Chad. Old well, Testament, got, New Testament, New Testament, and yeah, uh, got the Latin history Mass. of the Roman Rite, right? Yeah, yeah, Latin yeah Mass history of the Roman, Roman Rite. Right. That was great. <laughs> um, so you know they're kind of all based to be six months to a year, but some people do them a lot faster. Uh, Chad's one of those guys, and there's all kinds of resources in there if you're interested in that. So check that out at newsaintthomas.com. You heard Chad say it himself. Pray the Rosary every day. If you don't pray the Rosary, you're not on the team, right, Chad? That's right. <laughs> there's, I, I got to tell y'all, there's so much joy and consolation. You know, a lot of people, they want to eat a bunch of sweets or pizzas or cakes or something to, to chill or get away. <laughs> to me, it's the rosary. <laughs> like if I'm stressed out, yeah, why are my beads? Wow. I'm afraid of yeah. yeah. I need another rosary. To me, I mean, it is just <laughs> there. It, it's supernatural. I want to say, man, it's like a brain chemistry thing. It's not. It's grace. Um, if I can't it sleep is. at night, rosary. <laughs> uh, I can't tell you how many times I wake up and there's beads in the bed next to me. Because <laughs> I woke up in the middle of the night, was thinking about something. I just I just know what to do. I reach over, grab my beads, and I'm probably a decade or less, or maybe, yeah, decade or less. Because I'm just <laughs> in the arms of Our Lady. So praying the rosary is just, it's it's just a great thing. It's the Bible on beats, so do that. Um, if you like this video, hit the like button. Share it with your friends. If you were moved, share it on Facebook. And if you're new, please hit the subscribe button and hit the bell. And make sure you subscribe over at Chad's YouTube channel as well. That. I went over there and looked at it. There's some good stuff over there, especially on the science and all that. So check that out. All right. Well, thanks so much, Chad, for being here. Appreciate your witness. Sure. And uh, everyone, please pray for him. Also, I'd ask if you could please pray for my teenage daughters who turned 18. Yes. They're lovely girls. They're devout. They love the mass. They're reading good books. I'm just so proud of them. I couldn't be more proud of my daughters. So if you wouldn't, please give them a gift of praying a Hail Mary for them on their birthday. I would appreciate that. And until next time, remember, our Lord Jesus Christ is the light of the world and the salt of the earth. So go out there and be salty. God bless. Godspeed. Chad, thanks so much. Thank you.